2017 first podcast of the year on the first day of the year yeah no kidding um how the heck was your new year's man uneventful <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah same here actually it seems like the older i get the less uh the less willing i am to do crazy things like blow stuff up and set things on fire yeah well i don't drink anymore so new year's is not very fun <laughs> yeah have you have you are you completely done with drinking yeah huh interesting how is how is that how's that choice been for you so far and in the long run it's really not that much different i mean i yeah. it was not like i was doing if if you had given me the choice to have to do it like two years ago probably would have been pretty difficult because most of my life revolved around going out and most of the going out revolved around drinking of some sort uh, but now i don't do any of those same activities so it doesn't really change things much gotcha I mean, there there are a few different things, you know, like the friend that you go visit, you know, every couple of weeks and usually sit and have a couple of beers. Now it's like, oh, I guess I can come over and just come over and I'm just there to talk to you. So maybe in a way it'll be better. Yeah. Remember, uh, I, actually, that was kind of how we uh, all started hanging out um, in the first place was Carlos's house, you know, on his porch, just having a few beers and hanging out. Yep. It was very, very, it was like the, the, the beer gave us a reason to be somewhere instead of just wanting to be there. So I guess yeah. maybe, maybe cutting out the middleman will be nice. I don't know. We'll see. I do want to warn people uh, about this episode. First of all, this is the Ian McKellen episode. We may go a little long today because I feel like the, um, there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk with Lamb about in the beginning of this episode before we even get into Ian McKellen. So if you don't want to hear this kind of stuff, you can skip forward or whatever. Um, hopefully you listen to all of it though, because that's kind of why we're here. Yeah. And I get the sense that even the Ian McKellen part in end of itself is going to be a pretty, pretty dense one. Um, there's just a lot of ground to cover, whether we're talking about his, his personal life or his, his professional career, there's just a lot of stuff, um, you know, over the, over, over a lifetime as, as, as storied as his. So it makes sense. Yeah. And I, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about, you know, like we're not on television, we're not in a time slot we need to go longer on an episode we can because sure there's nothing saying we can't you know we're not on a with now that we're with fireside we're no longer on a a host that we have to worry about exactly how much time and how much um space we're using on the server you know we can do whatever we want which is yeah beautiful um so what i wanted to first talk about um happy new year first let me say that um minimalism you and i were talking a little bit about it so i thought maybe you know it would be good to talk about on air so why don't you tell me why you were thinking about it um i i just i, I mean it seems like every year in my life uh, you know as i get progressively older I, i'm sorry i don't know what the heck that is um <laughs> as as i'm getting progressively older i just want to have less and less stuff um and I feel like, you know, past past my, my mid-30s, um, I'm at a point in my life where um, it's not necessarily a sense of mortality that's creeping in, but definitely more of a sense of urgency about doing certain things that I've always wanted to. Um, you know, things like traveling more, uh, being able to see much more of the world and living much more simply. Um, I don't want to live um, with the, the primary goal being the acquisition of stuff anymore. Um, and I want to simplify my thought process so that I only have to think of a number of, you know, a very small number of very important things. Because um, I feel like, you know, when you have physical clutter in your life, you 
also have, you know, psychological clutter and emotional clutter that follows along with it. Um, so for me, it's, it's about, it's about minimizing all of those things. It's about taking everything back to its core, um, and, and assessing at the core, whether or not that thing is even something that I want in my life. Um, so I feel like in, in, in a weird kind of way, uh, minimizing the, 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 the material, the material things helps, um, to have, you know, it sets up mini catharses. Um, I, I don't know if that's the plural of that word, but I, I, I make realizations, um, subconsciously, um, about, about things that I've, I've never really needed. <laughs> so I guess that's where I'm going with it. What about you, man? I know you're, you're kind of doing a purge on your side as well. Yeah. I think that, um, before I go into that, the one thing I wanted to say about what you just said is I think that you and I, I think this was part of our conversation. At least I hope so. Um, it seems like when you start getting rid of things, you realize that, um, all these things, every object that you own, in some way, there's a small part of your brain that's being occupied with that object. You know, it's like there's a part of your brain that's running this process that's going, where is that thing? Remember where that thing is? Remember where that thing is? So you're using up vast amounts of your hard drive to remember things that, you know, just to remember the location of something that's using space. So by mm -hmm. getting rid of these things, you're clearing that space up. So it can't help but do exactly what you said um, and affect you psychologically at least i think um i've been fascinated you know this lamb i've been fascinated by um the tiny ho tiny house or tiny home movement for <laughs> almost a year now like i even i watch what is that hgtv there's a tiny house hunter show it's cheesy i watch it why because i just love looking at these houses and the solutions that people um fit but what also it it's it, it it's hilarious to me to watch these people because they continually um, say, oh, I want to I want to live small. I want to live minimal. And then when they go start looking at houses, they're like, well, I need a big kitchen. And <laughs> it's just I think we've talked about this before. But anyways, uh, there's a great documentary on Netflix right now that I will put into the show notes. Um, it's called Minimalism, I believe. It's like an yeah. hour and 20 minutes. Um, I just happened to see it the other day and it just kicked like you know, like I was 80% of the way there and it just kicked me over the line. And I was like, yeah, it's time to start doing that. Um, but before mm -hmm. I go go into that, I'm, I want to hear for you, what what is minimum, minimalism? What does my tongue do when it doesn't work? <laughs> um, <laughs> what does minimalism look like for you? Like what, what are your, what are your, what are you planning on minimizing? What do you, you know, just what's going to look like for you? You know, there I, I there are a couple of friends that I I've, I've had who have gone towards moving towards more minimal life, and and they all take on very different philosophies in in what they do in order to to create that minimal life. Um, for example, I have a friend who um, you know if he hasn't touched something in a year, then he gets rid of it. Um, you know, another friend who you know if he hasn't if he hasn't thought of um, like a book. Um, in over two years, then he gets rid of it. I mean, there's, I'm probably in the long run going to incorporate, um, a certain number, uh, um, of those different, um, philosophies, I guess. Um, I think for me, it's about removing the totems that anchor me to a certain part of my life. For example, um, as much as I, I would, I would like to think that I'm a photographer, you know, I haven't really done much in the way of photography in quite some time. So I have a feeling that quite a few of my photographic tools are going to go the way of the dodo. Um, 
plenty of clothes need to be getting, gotten rid of. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, there there are clothes that I have that are just I I, I eventually I want to become Steve Jobs in the wardrobe department, which is I have ten of the exact same item and I wear literally the exact same thing every single day. Um, and so for me, I think it's about starting with necessities so what are the tools that i need to do the things i need to do on a daily basis and then from there um, what are the things that remind me um, of what um, i'm good at or you know things like books that i i I really like or something like that but beyond that i mean furniture um, trinkets totems to 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 ancient parts of my life all of those are going to go bye-bye yeah i think that um a lot of what i've been looking at is uh you know, for a lot of people, one of the big things, like when I've been reading about this and hearing about people talk about minimalism, one of the things they talk about is um, getting rid of books. And you know books are a big thing to me. And, and I can understand why people, it's easy for them to get rid of books because to them, it's a book is a one-time transaction for a lot of people. Um, sure. They read it and then they never want to see it again. I reread continually. I, I go back to a book because I, I know I forget. And... um so it, it's been a hard thing for me to decide for years. Maybe that was one of the, the things that was preventing me. And I've finally come to this point where I think it's been about eight months. And like in the last eight months, 90% of my quote unquote reading has been done through audiobooks. Um, yeah. It's it's because I've been exercising more and this allows me to do both of those at the same time because um, doing them separately, I just, I just didn't have enough time in my day. And I mean, I, I still love to sit down with a paper book at the end of the night. I turn off the TV like two hours before I go to bed. There's like an hour where I just you know move around the room doing, you know, little things here and there. And then the last hour I read a paper book. Um, I think it, it calms me and gets me ready for sleep, which I need. And I'm a, I'm a horrible sleeper. So what I've decided, and I, I, I'm hoping this is going to work out, is I'm going to continue with audiobooks, but um, you know, if I have an audiobook of something, I'm going to get rid of the paper book. I can wow, listen, really? I can listen to it again. I own those. I use Audible, so I have. I own those. Even if I cancel the membership of Audible, I still own the audiobooks. And if Audible, for some reason, they're owned by Amazon, but if for some reason they went out of business, I can download all those because I sure. own them. I'm allowed to download them, so I'll never lose those. Um. But what I what I find the one hole in that whole book thing is that I always found was you can't search an audiobook. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I sometimes you need to find something. I know I take notes, but sometimes my notes aren't clear because I assumed I would know what I meant. Or sometimes I remember something um, from a book that I didn't take notes on, but now I'm remembering it and I want to find that passage. Um, and to be honest, paper books are hard to search too. I mean. Unless you have a really good memory and you can remember where on a page it is, uh, you're going to have trouble finding it. Uh, so what I've been doing is, because Audible is owned by um, Amazon, I've been going and buying Kindle versions of these books too. You know, it's a long process. I can't replace. I have I have hundreds of books. I can't. I don't have the money to do it all <laughs> right away. But uh, Amazon has these great things where... I just kind of ended up getting these emails on accident when I joined Audible. And you get this daily deal. And it's one book a day. And it's like 4 to $2. Huh. And, you know, 
and they're normally like with membership it's normally like 14 you know your membership's 15 bucks you get one book with that per month uh by the way they're not sponsoring this such <laughs> I, I wish they were i'd have them pay me in books um and lamb uh but basically you get it for like four bucks and it's you know it's not sometimes it's not something i want to read you know it's like some fantasy or thriller thing from a lesser known author that i'm not interested in so i just don't buy it that day but i've gotten some great books that way and i have like so many books in my backlog but what i just found out yesterday is there are about 20 i think it's about 20 maybe it's as much as 30 20 books a day uh where they're on sale for a kindle Huh. And instead of, you know, Audible is just one, but the Kindle one is like 20 books a day about. And it, uh, I'm going to put links to this stuff in the show notes so you guys can check it out if you're interested. Um, it's a great way if you're into ebooks or you're looking into getting in ebooks. Um, it's a great way to not spend a fortune, you know, spending $20 on ebooks when you already own the book. Uh, but I, it's the same thing. It's like 2 or $3 for these Kindle books. And what, what, Sometimes you get a really wonderful deal where you click through. So anytime uh, a Kindle book has an Audible companion book, which means um, they call it Whisper Sync, so you can read and listen to the audiobook at the same time. You can switch between them, whether you're reading or listening, and it's and it syncs your place, which is amazing technology to me. Uh, but because of that, when you buy a Kindle book on Amazon, or I assume on your Kindle as well, it offers you the audible version if it's available uh and you know normally they're like 20 bucks as well they're full price for a book but every once in a while you look at these kindle deals and it's like two bucks for the kindle book and then it's like add the audio companion for two bucks so now you just got both versions for four bucks huh it's it's and to me this is all new stuff to me it's it's kind of mind-blowing um but anyways that's just one way i'm looking i'm looking at with books i mean like what for you what is books going to work out as for a minimalist oh that's so tough i mean because you know there there are certain books that are, are mainstays for me um the problem is i have quite a few graphic novels too as well um and they just take up space they're just big um and the child the child part of me um wants to hang on to my comic books and graphic novels but I, you know i've 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 pretty much let go of that at this point um but I think I'm on a similar path to you. I have quite a few. I, I had a Kindle a long, you know, for for a very long time. So I have this huge back catalog um, in my Kindle library. Um, and the Kindle experience is definitely, it's not quite as as nice as thumbing through a paper book, but you know, it definitely allows you a lot more options, like being able to, you know, um, save your spot, um, pull quotes, um, you know, search things. I mean, it it, it does allow you that option, um, which is nice. Um, but I haven't I haven't tried this thing that you're talking about with syncing the audiobook and the 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 uh, um, the, the Kindle the, the Kindle equivalent. That sounds pretty amazing. I, I don't quite understand how that works, but that's fascinating. Yeah, it's um, just for built me, in. I, I really it, it it just flawless it syncs flawlessly with the, the audiobook as you're going along with it. Yep. And you can do both at the same time too if you want. So you can read and listen. That that's crazy. Yeah, I mean I I think um I've I, I now have it down so that I want every every book that I want to keep has to fit on one bookshelf, um, and I think that that's that's where it's ultimately going to be. Right now, I'm probably 
four, maybe five times that many when it comes to the number of books, but I need to slim it down. So that's that's where I'm going with it. Yeah, and I think that that's another thing too that um, I forgot to mention. There, are, I'm I'm still going to have paper books around. I have to, like you said, there are graphic novels. I like graphic novels. I don't want those digital. Yeah. Um, anything that's visual, I don't want digital. Um, like my all my art books, I don't want digital art books. And <laughs> and all my poetry books are still going to be here, not because they're um, visual, but because guess what? They don't put a lot of poetry into Kindle. Or mm-hmm. iBooks or eBooks in general. Poetry, for some reason, doesn't make it into eBooks. Um, I've sure. noticed that it's kind of strange. So my poetry books will still be around. And then there are books that I want to read that aren't available in those formats yet. You know, it might be a rare book that I found. So those will be around. But it's gonna in just reducing that number. Dude, if I could have one shelf where I just look at it and everything on it's awesome, I'm not gonna have a problem with that shelf being there. Sure. Um, another thing that I've been thinking about is get, obviously I've always been thinking about this and getting rid of my DVDs. There's no point. Um, but what I've been doing, another deal thing that I've been doing too is, uh, once a week, usually on iTunes, um, there's at least one movie that's like five bucks. So I always pop in once a week. And if it's a movie I actually like, I buy it five bucks. I don't buy anything off of iTunes. That's more than $5. So I just wait for movies to become five dollars and I buy them. <laughs> I have I what, have a what ahead. kind of gems have you pulled from there? Uh everything you I mean, I got Hateful Eight for five bucks. What? Really? Yeah. It's brand new. I got Hateful Eight for five bucks. Uh I got uh what is it called? Uh Mrs. Doubtfire for five bucks. That's not <laughs> too it's not too much of a surprise. Uh, <laughs> but uh I mean just uh, here you want to hear a deal that blew me away yesterday. I thought I misread it. It said ten movies for ten dollars, so that's a dollar a movie. And Wait, it, how are you seeing? How are you seeing these in iTunes? I don't understand. I don't quite understand how that works. You just got to go into the iTunes app on your phone and uh-huh. just go to the movies tab and then look at the banners. Huh. I just I I've, I've become so desensitized to banners that i just inherently ignore them i guess i probably shouldn't (laughs) yeah the banner like you know obviously when you go in it's going to be like whatever hot movie first but if you swipe over like three or four go there's usually like nine or ten banners you swipe through all of them there's always one and there's banners all the way through the page too it's not just that top banner um sure always in there there's going to be one that's on sale for five bucks you know they're always like plug in oh like you can rent this one for 99 cents but there's some in there you can buy for like five bucks and huh. or six bucks some and they'll put out these things too there's usually a list where it's like action movies for under sure. 10 under under ten dollars which means they're 9.99 that penny they think means it's less than ten dollars um but that 10 movies for ten dollars the not all of them are great movies. It was mostly good movies, but for a dollar, let's see, Shakespeare in Love, good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cider House Rules, good movie. Memento, great movie. Uh, Crash, great movie. Those are four of the. There wasn't a bad movie in the bunch. There was only one I hadn't seen, which was Winter uh, Bone. I have a bone to pick with you about Crash, but that's a whole different story altogether. I um, I hated that movie so much. <laughs> I thought it was really well done. Huh, interesting. Um, but 
this is uh, so what I've been thinking is, you know, I'm building this catalog, right? I haven't really meant to, but I'm building this catalog. Do I in, you know, like a month or two time, if I get enough stuff in there, do I really need Netflix? Do I really need Hulu? Minimize. Huh. You know, you know, what's funny is um, I'm finding myself spending less and less time in Netflix. I know that that's it's it's. And I don't know if it's just because the, the 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 cool factor is worn off, or just because the the I've gone through most of the catalog, but I find myself just not being satisfied with what's in there anymore. I'm just kind of sick with this new thing where they're all they're doing is plugging their own stuff. Like, yeah, new Netflix original, new Netflix original. I'm like, hey, you know what? I don't care. You made like three things that I liked. <laughs> yeah, and they've they've actually made a whole bunch of garbage too. Um, I, I just uh, um, recently saw um, a few episodes of this show that's a, a Netflix original called Magicians, and I I can't stand it. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, they, don't get me wrong; they're responsible for some really really good stuff too. But um, uh, they they've also put out some some pretty horrible ones along with that. So yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's part of it too. Maybe Netflix was the way of the dodo at some point as well. That's the thing is that frustrates me the most is they all these you know all these guys making their original stuff i understand why they're doing it you know like we want mm -hmm. you to come to our platform but in the long run all they're doing is making it more difficult for all of us it's adding complexity to our lives that's not needed it's not yeah. that there's not stuff on there that i don't like there's a lot of stuff on there that i want to watch i have lists and lists of stuff that's available on netflix and hulu that i want to watch but the truth is, going back to the minimalist ideal, does it actually bring value to my life? Or does, is it just something neat that occupies time? If sure. I'm buying movies that I love and TV shows I love on iTunes, wouldn't it be better for me to just invest time re-watching things that I love? And, and also, you know, like I have Amazon Prime whether I want it or not, the video, because uh -huh. I pay for Amazon Prime because I buy things off of Amazon. So if I really need to stream a show, I have that. And I have HBO whether I want it or not because it's included with my internet. Sure. So do I really need those two? Or could that $20 be spent you know, paying off a bill? Or beyond the 20 bucks, um, just the amount of time. Like I wonder, you know, and I think it's just part of our, our mentality now um, in that, you know, we have shows and we have things that we want to watch and we convince ourselves that these are things that, that are supposed to be uh, fulfilling in some kind of way, but in in a lot of senses, especially with the mediocre ones, it's literally just killing time, you know. Right. Absolutely. And and the and the more and the more I get into the the minimalist stuff, as well as the 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 more busy I become, the less I really want to waste time doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, I just I, I just don't need this stuff. Like it's just it's occupying space. Like you said, it's not bringing fulfillment to me. Uh, it's. You know, like if you've, I've been doing this finance check and I look at things and every time I look at it, you know, it's not just the money. It's just looking at it. I'm like, do I need that in my life? Like, for sure. example, I, you know, I'm paying $50 a month for Adobe Creative Cloud. Guess what? Mm. Since I stopped doing vlogs, I don't use Adobe Creative Cloud, but it's a year contract. So I'm stuck paying oh. $50 a month for something that I'm not using until next month. <laughs> no, not next month. Sorry, March. So I mean, that's like $200 for no reason. So what I've been seriously contemplating, and you and I talked a little bit about this, is um, getting an iPad, 
and using the iPad as my main computer. Uh, 90, 95% of the things that I need to do I can actually do on an iPad and some of them are actually easier in iOS. Um, you know I have this old MacBook Air I already own it. I can just leave it here and for that 5% that I need to do on a computer I have it. And then clear, you know, get rid of this wireless keyboard, get rid of this mouse, get rid of this external monitor, clear all this stuff up. So guess what? I have an empty coffee table. That would be beautiful. Wow. <laughs> How amazing would that be? It would be amazing. And I mean, I know there's a lot of people out there pulling their hair out saying like, oh, you can't go to an iPad, but I can. My lifestyle does not require computing. Uh, it's mostly just doing things, typing things and moving things. That's the extent of what a computer does for me. Yeah, and to be honest with you, for most people, that's the case too. They've just convinced themselves that they need a full, uh, you know, a full platform by which to do a lot of these things. Like, I, 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 I put across the challenge to you know um, my cousin who was kind of going through the same thing. Like, she was trying to decide whether or not she needed a laptop, and um, I told her, you know, well, just try to use an iPad to do everything you need to do for an entire week and see how difficult it is. And after the third day, she was like, I'm never going to own a laptop again. <laughs> it, it's not necessary for most people, like you said. Now, I'm not going to say that there's people out there that don't, that aren't the other way, because there definitely are. You know, just like there's sure. people out there that have to have PCs and not Macs. And that's why these things exist. But for me, it sounds strange to say, but buying something new is actually a way to get minimal. Um, you know, I have actually I'm, I'm going to put the link down here. I'm going to be shameless and I'm going to put the link in the show notes to my eBay sales. I'm putting stuff up on eBay. You guys want to buy it? Cool, because I'm selling it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm selling my Intuos tablet. I've never really used it. I use it like twice. You know, I'm selling I'm selling my GoPro camera. I'm getting rid of stuff I don't need. So if somebody out there wants to have it and they're going to get use and joy out of it, awesome. I'm and really if, curious as to what your your collection of stuff is going to look like in two months. Me too. That's it's kind of. I fun. mean, how 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 crazy are you going though? Like, I mean, how how much stuff have you gotten rid of already? Oh, I'm not going hardcore, um, just because I want to make sure that I make the right choices. You know, it's, sure. sometimes something like this, you make a drastic change like this. If you go in it too fast. It's too easy to go, oh, I forgot I needed that for this. Now you have to go buy it at full price again. You know, <laughs> you got you to think about everything that you do. But, you know, there's certain things where you're, you just, you know. You know, like if it's in the garage and it's in a box and you haven't looked at it in two years, you sure. don't need that. Um, I've been, uh, also I've been using that uh, new Google photo scan thing. Just, oh, I, I haven't even tried that yet. You got to tell me what your experience has been like with that. I've I've heard great things about it, but I've never even touched it. It's one of the two things that Google makes that I think. Uh, I don't mean specifically the Photo Scan app, but I mean Google Photos. It's one of the two things that they make that I think is flawless. Mm. Um, I mean, I I I literally when I got my new phone, I looked and and I saw that. Whoa! I only I'm only using seven gigs of my phone. But I put all the same stuff that was on my last phone on here, and it said I was using 30, 30 gigs. So that was all caches yeah. and junk and stuff like that. Uh, so then I started going, well, how minimal can I get this? And I looked, and I'm like, whoa, four gigs of, of photos. And, mm -hmm. and 
and I'm using you know the iCloud you know minimize where it saves a, the screen size version on your phone, and I don't feel like I had that many photos, but I said nah, this is I'm done with this. So I I downloaded the Google Photo thing, I put it all onto Google Photos, and I deleted everything off my phone, everything off of iCloud, as far as photos, and I love yeah. it. I love it. I have the same access in the Google app that I had when the photos were on my phone, but they're in the cloud. And it doesn't get, and it's unlimited space and it's free. Why wouldn't I love that? Man, I, I, I feel like there was a part of, there was part of, uh, you missed the boat on, on the, um, at some point you should have done tech tutorials, man. I think you have so much experience with this stuff, <laughs> you know, so much hard fought experience too. It's not like you, you go into these things lightly, you go into these things pretty full speed. Um, I, I would love, I would love to see your, your description of the use, you know what I mean? Well, that's something that you and I had talked about and I wanted to actually bring up today. Um, you remember before we, we moved to Medium, we were talking about adding to the website a section called Technical Badassery, where you yeah, and I yeah, were yeah. going to just talk about our ideas and our thoughts on the tech world. I think we should add that to our Medium. Yeah. 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 And, and, and what do you what do you think about doing a, a tutorial section on stuff like this, for example? Because I would love to, you know, yeah, I feel like photo sharing, especially in the, the day and age that we live where, you know, um, the, the camera phones have gotten so good. And even with me, like for as a photographer, I have iFi cards and all my DSLRs, so everything transfers straight to the cloud. I have three or four different places where all of my photos go and it's terabytes worth of stuff. Well, I think for you know like for you like i don't know if google photos is the solution because it's you're taking pictures that you're going to want larger than they're going to save them on there you know like it saves high quality versions but you know it's not going to be the same quality as you know uh, as a raw file yeah but i'm okay with that i mean raw's kind of overrated um don't get me wrong i'm sure plenty of photographers i know are going to you know, rip at me for this, but rarely in my life as a photographer have I ever needed a, a raw image. Um, so for me, high resolution JPEGs, considering how good they are and how lossless they are these days, um, is more than enough. So I feel like I can save a four or five meg file um, and and still get away with it. Yeah, I think actually there was um, one photographer told me one time he said uh, that raw was for medium grade photographers. Says the yeah. <laughs> low grade photographers use JPEG because they don't know any better. Uh, then they learn about RAW, and then they learn they can edit and get what they want out of RAW. But then when they get good, they don't need RAW anymore, so they go back to shooting in JPEG. Yeah, I feel like I literally had that exact same transition over a five year span. You know, initially you, I don't, I didn't quite understand JPEG compression, um, and I didn't really understand the difference differences between digital photography and film photography and how different the dynamic ranges were in the sensors. Um, but as I, I, I started to figure out RAW, I mean, RAW is the tool that you have so that you have all the RAW material in order to, as the name denotes, um, in order to fix an image. That's what it's basically for. It's not necessarily to, to create cooler images. It's so that you have enough width one way or the other, whether it's um, you know density in pixels or uh, density in color or light, so that you can modify an image to make it what it was supposed to be in the first place. Um, as you get better and better and you learn to manipulate the tools better and better, you can just make it right when you actually take it. <laughs> exactly. So so, so once you learn the tools well enough, then you don't need that massive, crazy raw file. I haven't shot a raw file in, 
or a raw. Uh, I haven't needed a raw image in maybe two or three years now. And that's that's the beauty of skill over technology and all these other things. It's just you know like we can invest in these things. Go back to the minimalist ideas. Like sure, you can have this, you can you can have this, or you can focus on this one thing and make this thing great. You know, like do you need? Are you in a band? Okay, maybe you need ten guitars. Are you not? You could probably get away with two, an electric and acoustic. Sure. And if you just play the heart out of those guitars and become a guitar, better guitar player, it doesn't matter what you're playing on. As long as it's a halfway decent guitar, you're good. Uh, yeah. You know, like there's there's so many ways to rethink things. Like I've been thinking about even, you know, like if I ever go back to making videos, I did a test and I filmed something completely on my iPhone. Looks great. It's it's perfectly fine. I don't need anything higher quality than that. In fact, it was 4K, so it was higher quality than I was shooting on the camera that I bought for $600. Um, and I edited on iMovie on the phone. Uh, that's kind of a pain, but uh, doing it on the iPad would be better because I'd have more space, but also because you can look at the sound waves. And is it going to be as good as using Premiere? No, not until they improve it um, more, which they may never do. I don't know. But is it good enough? Is it passable enough to do what I needed to do? Yes. Then why? Sure. Why is that? Is that last ten percent difference really worth it? For me, no. And you know, one of our friends who kind of inspired me to do that, um, Giovanni, um, you know, for, for his Cruel's music video, um, ended up shooting the last two videos, actually, um, entirely on his phone, and they look awesome. You'd never be able to tell, and he ed- he, he made it a point to, to do all of the shooting and editing on the phone itself, and, and the results are pretty astounding. So, you know, for, for my personal stuff, as well as some of the business stuff I'm doing for the golf company, um, for No Bad Pars, I'm, I'm exclusively using my phone now. I mean, the only drawback to that is that I'm going through battery life like no one's business, but, um, you know, nothing in external battery case can't solve. And I'm going to put those links to those videos in here. You guys should go watch them. They're really well done. Actually, he, I think he was doing a video for somebody else recently. Yeah, so he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, by the way, he's also, Cruels is also the one who did our theme song that you hear in every episode. Yeah. Um, another thing that I was thinking too, you know what? I'd love to get to a point where you and I don't have to put a microphone in front of us and and, and fire up a computer and Skype to record these episodes. I'd love for us to get to a point where all we have to do is put on our uh, earbuds and call each other um, phone to phone and record. And here you go. Here's our episode so that we can do it anywhere. It's it's funny that you say that because, um, you know, over the last week, actually, I've been trying to figure out a way to make it so that I wasn't anchored um, in one place for our episodes just because, you know, especially moving forward, one of my goals for the next two years is to start living a more remote life, you know, being able to travel more and work from anywhere. Um, but, you know, obviously, I still want to continue to do this stuff with you. So um, over the next you know couple of months, I wanted to figure out some kind of solution that allowed me to do this completely remote without having to rely on a laptop or a Wi-Fi connection at all. And there's there's several solutions um, from where I've looked at very lightly. You know, with an iPad, you can now get that lightning to USB connector. If you really want to mm-hmm. take that microphone with you, you can do it right on the iPad. But what I was thinking was... You know, we started this show with earbuds. You know, <laughs> the sound sure. quality is not what it is right now, but 
like going back to that difference between 90 and 100 percent is that really make a difference i mean like we stopped editing this show because i realized other people weren't really editing their shows um and i was putting hours of work in that i didn't need to for that 10 percent and nobody seemed to mind that we're not editing um i've i was just listening to podcast yesterday um by the verge and one of the there's three people on the verge cast talking to each other one of the people was recording their section using apple's new airpods huh just i mean in the sound quality yeah you could tell it was less than the other person's but they're a way bigger podcast than us if they can do that sound why can't we or every time somebody has a call-in guest guess what that's the sound quality you're getting and all these interview shows are so big that that's 80% of the stuff going out is audio on a phone. So why can't we do that and make our lives easier? Instead of this setup, I've got a, I've got a table in front of me so that's lifted up high enough so that I can have the microphone in front of me that's plugged into the monitor, uh, the external monitor that's plugged into the computer. And then I've got this little thing in front of it to stop my S's from sounding... You know, like it's just so complex, and we're making our lives so busy for no reason. And I don't mean just in this; I mean in general. I'd love I think, to figure uh, that out. Just, I think you've just uh, made the decision for uh, for both of us. Then I think the February one, whoever the subject is, uh, um, and whatever we end up doing, I think we should try to record that on phones again. <laughs> yeah. Well, we uh, what I've been looking into is there's a couple apps that will let you record phone calls, and we'll have to try it out and see how it sounds. Um, sure. I, but I, I have a feeling it'll be fine. And yeah. you guys, you guys will hear about the adventure. To be honest, um, if we don't talk about it at length in the next episode, maybe we'll write something about it in the new technical badassery section of uh, our medium page. Yeah, that's that's um, that's an interesting uh, environment too with medium. I think. Uh, um, it's kind of an untapped gold mine of, of, of maze. I, I spend more time on medium than any other thing that I spend time on, on my phone or, uh, or, or otherwise on the internet. The medium's kind of amazing. It's great. I love it. Um, yeah. Can you actually, I, I would love to hear what you, what you found. Cause I'm sure, you know, given how new medium is that, that we've barely scratched the surface of what's out there when it comes to what you can do with it. Um, as well as the stuff that's on it. I mean, what have you, what have you been able to find on medium thus far? Well, um, actually, this you kind of we're doing this again, where you talked into something that I wanted to talk about. Uh, <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of podcasts in the last few weeks, just because I've been spending a lot of time on the treadmill. And uh, there's this one podcast. I'm not going to name them out because I'm going to um, say something critical, and I don't want to be a jerk. Um, it's it's an interesting podcast. That's why I continue to listen to it. But um, Two things that annoy me. First one I'm going to say before I go into the longer one is the one, one guy talks more than the other guy, and I feel like that's me on this show, so Lamb interrupt me more. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be uh, the guy my, that's talking too much. Yeah, my, my, my parents raised me, so that, that that's tough for me to do without feeling like a jerk. So I'll, I'll try. I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying. I understand. This guy's like 80-20. It's, it's awful. Jeez. Ugh. That it's, is and I don't, brutal. It's it's embarrassing to listen to, and I don't want us to be like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think I know which podcast you're talking about too. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, okay, yeah. So the other thing though that they that I noticed that they were saying that they do a lot in there that's also annoying is they're continually saying, um, you know, people their their format can be kind of question and answery. Um, and every time that somebody will say ask a question, they'd be like, oh, and they'll start to give an answer, and they go, I wrote about this more in length on our website, blah 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 dot blah 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 forward slash blah blah blah. Well, first of all, never ever give out links in the middle of your show because that's what the show Ugh. notes are for. Um, sure. And the reason I'm, I'm going into this is we always have show notes. Um, sometimes they're very minimal because I don't feel like there's anything that you guys that will enhance this for you. But we also on medium, what we've been doing is we have a section called supplemental material. Um, so if there's something beyond show note size um, that enhances the episodes, like um, the Nick cave episode, we both did a, um, not really top five, but five, five songs we love by Nick Cave. We each did an article for that, so that went into the supplemental material thing. So that's one way that we've learned to use Medium. Um, what I've been doing on my personal thing is uh, I've discovered I had you know I had my newsletter, and I killed my newsletter because it was just another thing, um, another responsibility, another thing to do. But I didn't really kill it. I just moved it to Medium. Um, sure. So Medium basically allows you to do a thing called letters. Um, so you have your normal um, blogging. Um, you create publications. Um, so like, for example, Lamb and I are separate writers. We have separate accounts. But then we have a publication that we share together called Random Badassery. Um, so anything that we write, we can publish to that publication and will show up so people can subscribe to just the publication and not to each of us individually. Well, I killed my website and I moved to Medium as well. And so I created a publication for my writing things that I just, that are specifically tied to just me and, um, that I don't want to share on random badassery. Um, like I've been doing a journal and it's just like short little and like two minute reads of something that's I'm thinking about that. I, I feel like one or two people, if they read it, maybe it would make their day a little bit better. Some kind of knowledge that I've discovered, sure. not that I have. Um, but the, the letters, uh, like I just, I dropped a letter last week called my top, um, 10 books of 2016 and, and it goes out to the people that are subscribed to it just like a newsletter would, but it also publishes onto the site. So if you're not subscribed to the, to the letter or you don't want to be subscribed to the letter, but you just want to read one of them, you can just go to the website and look at it. It's, I mean, these tools that they've provided are brilliant. Yeah, I wonder why I haven't. I mean, it's it's funny because Twitter is still huge, Instagram is still huge. Most of these you know social networks that we we know of, and 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 it's it's weird to me that Medium, um, considering how useful of a tool it is for anyone who wants to read content that actually is well constructed um, and well organized, I don't know why there isn't more of a push towards Medium. Um, or maybe it's just in my sphere of friends or whatever it is, but I just haven't heard much about it from anyone other than you. I'm I'm not going to complain about it because I like the size <laughs> that it is now. Um, sure. They, they seem to have a really good handle on, on uh, quality. There's not a lot of junk on Medium. Um, it's really yeah. people writing very seriously. Um, so mm -hmm. I feel like if it, if it got too big, that that would change or it would be harder for them to maintain that. Um, it's an awful thing to say because no business wants to hear somebody say that about them. <laughs> 
but they're yeah too- but i hear you though i mean right now right now the, the the content is so tight like almost every article i read on 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 medium is well done um well edited and useful in some way it's the it is the place to go for amateur journalism yeah um, am, amateur not being quality wise amateur be mean the, the difference between amateur in the and pro in the truest sense of the meanings of the words uh, pros get paid amateurs do it for free um so it's the number one place for amateur journalism and some professionals so, uh, like uh signal versus noise which is um base camps long running blog that they had on their website they moved it to medium yeah so mm-hmm. And it's it's, I feel like we're plugging medium, but you know we talk a lot about <laughs> a, a lot about tools that we love, and this is something that we've been using. And I'm I'm amping up my medium usage for 2017. Um, I want to publish something, whether on my own publication or for random badassery or just a journal piece, at least once a week. Yeah, I was gonna and, and offline at some point too. I want to talk to you about how, um, like, if we want to set up technical badassery as its own separate uh, publication altogether, if we want it to be a part of uh, random badassery. Yeah, we'll figure that out. Either way, you guys will yeah. have, you guys will know about it. Okay. I feel like once I feel like once an episode we just plug a tool that we really like. <laughs> and and that's what I would love to use that technical badassery for have a place sure. for for it to go in length you know because we try to keep it tight you know i i run on longer um but in my mind i think i'm keeping it tight <laughs> but in an article you can run long sure um yeah. so should we uh move into mr or mr sir ian mckellen sir ian mckellen um oh yeah i guess i'm i'm kind of nervous about this one um I, I, but I always say that. I mean, I, I typically say that before the, the, the episode or the, the subject matter is brought up. The the, the reason for me specifically um, for Ian McKellen is because this man has lived such an amazing life. <laughs> and it seems it seems difficult to, to do it justice in the, the hour that we have to talk about him. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, I'm, I would love to dive in. Let's let's do it. And that's the thing, too. That's uh, I know like you and I. We get so excited about these subjects, but what we have to keep reminding ourselves too is our job is not to represent their life. These aren't biographies. Our job is True. just just all we're talking about is their creativity and and how their creativity can teach us and the listeners something, hopefully, at least us, uh, <laughs> and and hopefully at least one listener. And and, <laughs> uh, and that's why I, I get caught up in the research. You know, sometimes I'm reading wikipedia or whatever and then i'll catch myself and i'll go this is really interesting but this is not pertinent and i have to refocus my my research go okay back to okay what does ian mckellen think about acting yes i need to know that um it it, it's it's really like a a journey for both of us i think sure learning these yeah and it's it's and it's tough because if you look at a guy like Ian McKellen, so much of his creative life was was spearheaded by his personal life that it's you know. And I know to to a certain extent, um, most of our subjects are like a guy like Nick Cave, for example. His entire um, creative life is is fueled by his personal life. So, you know, there are some guys who who let it bleed through pretty severely. Um, I think with Ian McKellen. Um, the, the the fascinating thing about him is is that he's such a student of his art form 
and he has been for the the better part of half a century um and so because of that there's there's a sense of there's a sense of care that he approaches um his art with um that i think is really unique to him um so despite the fact that he's a very strong activist for gay rights um and he's lived one heck of a life i i think just purely from an artistic perspective he is he is such a focused and dedicated man when it comes to his craft and i i really really enjoy i i really enjoyed researching that and finding out how much it really did mean to him so that's that's really cool it's like the video that you and i um, that I sent you that you had already seen. There's, I'm going to put it in the show notes. There's a video of Ian McKellen, very young. First of all, it's worth watching just to see what he looked like as a young man. Um, at an early stage in his career, he was very famous for playing Macbeth, and on the on the stage, not in film. Uh, and this is him as a young man explaining how. N- Basically, he's explaining one specific speech, which is tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow um, from Macbeth. But in the process, you see many things. First of all, you see the way he approaches um, acting, which I think you and I will probably go into more after this. Um, But you also see how that relates to his whole interpretation of the role. Um, Sure. Not just that one speech, but what he's talking about, the research... Um, the understanding that he seeks is it says everything about him as an actor. And, and I think that's why I had trouble finding interviews where he talked about acting because it Mm -hmm. almost seemed like he's like, I've already talked about this. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and just from that, it's funny the, the, the video that you sent me, I actually didn't find, um, because, you know, I, I've, I've known for, for most of my, my tenure, like when I was younger, I, I, I was really into acting. Um, and I did quite a bit of Shakespeare as well. So, you know, Ian, Ian McKellen, um, uh, because of his his tenure doing stage stuff, uh, was very much a hero of mine. So um, I started to look around for his 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 interpretation of the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech, and I ended up finding a bunch of other ones. Um, you know, Patrick Stewart is one notable one, as well as Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch. Um, but I, I I found Ian McKellen's last the the, the interpretation that you you sent me, um, and I found I found that video at the very tail end of my search, and it's very interesting to see how much of his interpretation of that particular speech trickled into the performances of all of these other actors. I mean, don't get me wrong, they they might have come to this on their own, but I know with Ian McKellen and and Patrick Stewart, for example, they're good friends. So there's a part of me that really wonders if a guy like Patrick Stewart on you know the day before he's going in to, to, to do a dress rehearsal for the first time for Macbeth, if he calls his, his friend Ian McKellen and, and asks him, you know, you've, you've defined this role. Um, what does this speech mean to you? And I wonder how much that would influence uh, a guy like Patrick Stewart and, and what that changes about his particular performance. It's fascinating. Oddly, I can answer that for you. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, <laughs> because I ran across an interview in, in the YouTube rabbit hole of Patrick Stewart talking exactly about that. Um, wow! I'll put How did that, I miss that? <laughs> I'll, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, so basically, it's Patrick Stewart. I'll just break it down briefly. Um, it's way better to watch him tell the story. It's only like a two-minute clip. Uh, but he's talking about when he was doing Macbeth. I I don't even know what movie that is. Um, from what I can tell from watching the scene, it looks like a South American or uh, maybe Chechenian like dictator version. Of yeah. modern dictator version of Macbeth, because um, Patrick Stewart has this very 
um, his mustache is very uh, Fidel Castro. Yeah, yeah, me, yeah. To me, but um, him being so white and bald, I I don't know that he's playing South American. I don't know. It's hard to tell with movies. But anyways, I don't know what movie that was. I should have looked that up. But he's he's. I think he's doing the interview after the movie's been made, and he's talking about having um, to film the tomorrow, tomorrow and tomorrow scene. And I guess he goes like he says something like he goes out into the street and he sees Ian McKellen because they they live near each other and. I guess this was happening near there or something. I'm not sure how it happened, uh, but he he sees him and he goes over to him and, and uh, he's like, "McKellen is doing something." I, I don't I don't remember the wording Stewart uses. He's doing something, so he doesn't really want to interrupt him. But he's he tells him he's like, "I'm doing that speech," and you know you're famous for being Macbeth, and he just looks at him. And he gave him one piece of advice, and he said. In the line, tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow, the most important word is and. <laughs> and then Patrick Stewart goes, yes, okay, I've got it. Okay, that's all I needed. Thank you. <laughs> that's so, amazing. So, And, and it's, it's like this one little piece, but that's and that's a great thing to hear about these two friends. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of videos of them together, actually, and they just did like a whole run. That whole Royal Shakespeare Company, my God, man. Can you imagine having been around at that time? The, the people that were working in, in London in the at the Royal Shakespeare Company at the time were Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart, Bob Hoskins, Malcolm... Yeah. Um, Malcolm or, McDowell. Malcolm McDowell. Thank you. Almost said McLaurin. I've got frozen there. Malcolm McDowell and Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. Can you imagine that? I mean, like th- those are like f- five of the greatest actors of our, of our time, <laughs> and they're all having drinks together on a Saturday night after Hamlet. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's there's some great video. I, I should see if I can find it. There's a great video of um, Anthony Hopkins' Othello, and uh, Bob Hoskins' is Iago. It's oh it's, nice. It's really good. Um, but anyways, like that that whole. I don't know if it's it's if it's uni- if it's a unique thought process to um, Patrick Stewart and to Ian McKellen in the sense that um, they're both primarily consider themselves stage actors, mm-hmm. even though they're more famous for not being stage actors. But they they consider themselves primarily stage actors, and Shakespeare is a huge part of that for them. So I don't know if do, do you have any clue if that's um, if that's common that exchange that they had there or if that is something unique to those two men i get the sense that it's unique to those two men um i had quite a few friends you know when i was when i was i spent a brief stint in london as well and did some shakespeare while i was out there um and it was a very non-cooperative environment um there was you know and it might have been because i was working with a lot of young actors but a lot of them didn't really help each other a whole lot um you know you could see that a little bit more with the older actors but i get the sense that a relationship like patrick stewart and and ian mckellen um and that type of interaction is actually more rare than it is anything else um so to hear a story like that's actually really really cool yeah they they just seem to gel and they they're very different too and it's 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 a nice friendship uh yeah 
Ian McKellen is is a particularly interesting character, and in some ways, it's hard not to tie him to Patrick Stewart because um, both of them bring so much charisma and strength to everything they do. Yeah, and I mean, even even in the, ugh, I I hate that they're known for these things, you know, but I I can't. I can't not go back to X-Men um, and their first interaction with each other. Um, you know, you could tell that there's, you know, it, it's it's like the Ocean's Eleven vibe between Clooney and, and Brad Pitt where you get the sense that they knew each other long before that very first scene, you know, just in the way they interacted with each other. There was so much, there was so much, so much knowledge of, of the other person that, that kind of just oozes out of their interaction that, that, that you could tell that there was a long history um, between those characters, and I think that their friendship helps to make those interactions so much more, so much more visceral and so much more meaningful. You know, and I think that what's interesting too is I saw an interview where somebody had asked um, Ian McKellen, like, why, why did you choose to be Magneto? Like, you're Ian McKellen, um, and he said that Brian Singer told him. He says, you know, this is about a group of people that's subjugated by society. Mm-hmm. So that activist side of him clicked right with that role. So I, I mean, even though like you might hate that he's associated with it, it seems like he doesn't. I think he's very proud of it. Yeah. And, and I'm, and I'm not saying that as, as you know, M- McKellen having any feelings about it. I just, and it's not even that I, I feel badly that people know him for that. I just wish people knew about the, the rest of his stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, because I mean, for, for better or for worse, he's always going to be remembered as, as either Magneto or Gandalf. Um, mm-hmm. but even from, even from a film perspective, I mean, the, the movie that floored me, um, that absolutely took my breath away, um, was, was his depiction of, of, of Richard the third. I mean, he is a villain, the likes of which very few people have ever seen on screen. Like anyone who needs to see what, what Ian McKellen, Ian McKellen's fully capable of needs to go see that performance. And you know, it's horrible. I wanted to watch that for this episode. It's not available on iTunes to buy and it's not available to stream. I yeah, knew, good luck finding it. <laughs> I knew that was an important one because I've always I've always known about that performance of his since I've uh you know, my little study of film here and there and I've never seen it. And you know, I've never seen any of his stage stuff. Um because you know, I just I'm, I don't live in the UK, so it's tough for me to find it nor am I ever in New York when he's uh, on stage. Um but his that one that that one defines him to me. Um, so if you if you ever have any opportunity to see it, I saw it I saw it a few years ago. Um, but if you ever have the opportunity to see it, by all means, do it. And that's it. The it shows a diversity to him as an actor that I think, um, like you said, it sucks that he's only known for um, those two things because there's such diversity. Just in um, the, your description of that reminds me of his villain in him as the Nazi and apt pupil. Oh um, yeah. Yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's a very strong um, villain that creates a lot of hatred, but then you look at Magneto, Magneto is a villain, but you don't hate Magneto. You never hate Magneto. Um, yeah. So there's a versatility in, in that fluctuation there. I would go as far as to say that Ian McKellen is the epitome of getting better with age. Sure, uh, I agree. His his Macbeth that he's famous for is good. I like it. But there's so much that he's done recently that I feel is far more powerful. And Apps People was his first project with Singer, right? Yes, I believe so. 
Yeah, yeah, that's I think that's the project they met on. Yeah, he was bummed that he wasn't in the usual suspects. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Um, the, did you, have you had a chance to watch, um, Mr. Holmes? No, I have not. I haven't seen it. You need to watch it. All right. Lay it on me. What, what, give, give me the skinny. What's, what's, what's the reason? I know you, I know you love Benedict Cumberbatch. I love Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, after watching this, I will say Benedict Cumberbatch is my second favorite Sherlock Holmes yeah, I mean, I I can see. I mean, Ian McClellan just looks like. I don't know why I have this weird impulse to add an L to his name. McClellan is the way I want to say it, <laughs> um, and I've been fighting that for the last twenty years of my life. I have no idea why. Um, but yeah, no, I've heard so many good things about it, and I'm kind of ashamed, um, considering how much of a hero of mine he is, that I haven't seen it actually. It's on Hulu right now for free, and Amazon okay. Prime for free. I'm definitely checking. I have Prime, so I'm I'm pretty much going to watch that right after we're done. Um. Okay, so here's, without being too long-winded, um, because I'm more interested to hear what you think about it than what I have to say. Um, the thing about it is, the reason I, I feel like it's a... Um, the whole premise of the movie is, this is an aged Sherlock Holmes. He's old, he's retired, he's living in um, in the countryside, isolated, Watson Watson is nowhere to be seen. Watson's married and has left him. Um, <clears throat> and so there's an interesting perspective on Sherlock there. Um, you see that he had, there's a there's a point in there where um, someone asks him if he has regrets, and he says, "Oh yes," which is it's 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 the break it's the the brokenness of his pride that. You know, like the the Cumberbatch performance, the Robert Downey performance, even um, Hugh Laurie as House, which is a representation of Sherlock Holmes, uh, all are driven in that egotism and that um, that pride um, sure. of being the one who can solve the puzzles that no one else can solve. Uh, so to see that time has changed that, um, it brings a complexity to the character. Plus, also in the story, there's an interesting twist in the sense that they're playing it as Sherlock Holmes was a real man mm -hmm. that he really existed and that the movies and the books were all made, but he was a real man who saw those things made and, um, and lived through that. And he never wore the deer skin cat or the, what they call that hat deer hunter hat, whatever that. Yeah. yeah that Yeah. That, the, I, I don't know. Exactly. The, the famous, <laughs> the famous Sherlock Holmes hat. Um, he never wore that. That was something Watson made up in the fictional versions of the stories. And the and the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories is not Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It is uh, John Watson. John? Mm -hmm. J James? John? Dr. Watson. Um, Dr. Watson. Let's leave it there. <laughs> but what is... what I, The reason that I believe that this performance is so powerful is there's two specific things about it. Um, number one, there he's 94 years old. His character is 94 years old, but he's remembering. He's trying to his this puzzle that he's trying to solve is he's losing his memory. His mind is slowly going away, and there's this case, this unsolved case in his head in the past, um, and he's trying to just to piece it together enough to write it down, and so you're you're seeing this jump in time. 
Um, so you're seeing him at 94, but then you're seeing him at, at McKellen's age, which is in his 70s. And and for most of us, the difference between a 70-year-old and a 90-year-old is very subtle be, because we're young and we have that horrible ageism built into us. We don't see much of a difference. But in his performance, I dare you to not be able to tell me the difference between the two. There is no doubt which of them you're looking at and there's no makeup used that I can tell it's just in the way that he moves the way that he speaks the pauses he uses the charisma which one he brings more charismas to the the younger Sherlock and less to the older and and through that difference in this performance he's able to create two different characters that are the same character but to show what age has done to them and what a it, badass. <laughs> it's 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 incredible. And and that's the other thing I wanted to say is why I believe he's gotten better at, at acting um as he's gotten older. Um uh, I believe it was Roger Ebert said the great cinematographers and the great directors are great when you don't know that they're doing anything. When what they sure. do becomes invisible, when they've done something so good that you are lost in the movie instead of watching their technical proficiency. Sure. Um, and that is like for acting to me. So when I look at his Macbeth, I go, that is good, but it's young man. Good. It's mm -hmm. full of bravado. It's full of look what I can do. But then 70 something year old Ian McKellen doing Sherlock Holmes. And, and there's this uh, invisibleness to his acting where mm -hmm. it's, he's, he's not acting. He is becoming, you know, he is him. Sure. It's, it's an embodiment and it's, it's just, that's the reason to watch it. I would, I would, <clears throat> I would go as far as to say, having not seen everything he's done, but it's in the ranking probably for his magnum opus, in my opinion. And it's a beautiful film. Do you know when, how long ago was that made? Like a year or two ago. Okay, so it's fairly recent. Then, I, for some odd reason, I thought it was older than that. Other than the thing he just did with Patrick Stewart, I believe it's his most recent thing. Huh. Very cool. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that too uh, about the the them playing that story like he were a real person because I, the Benedict Cumberbatch version is is very similar to that as well. Um, in that Doctor Watson has a blog and he's basically, um, it, it, you could tell that part of the story is being told through how the blog is constructed, um, and and playing it as though you know um, um, Sherlock was a real man as well. That's it's it's cool to see that 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 twist on it because I feel like it makes the character much more relatable and much less relatable at the same time. And after watching the movie, I, I couldn't help. I I had my monthly credit for Audible, and mm -hmm. the complete Sherlock Holmes came up. It's a sixty dollar audio book. I got it for my fourteen dollar oh. monthly fee. Jeez. <laughs> so I, I've been going through the, the Sherlock Holmes books, and it's it. You can tell just in reading the two that I've read, you can tell that McKellen did his homework because there's which uh, which ones did you read? I'm going. It's it's the complete, so it's in order. So I studied. Uh, I went through a study in Scarlet, which I've read before mm -hmm. actually, and now yeah. I'm like three fourths of the way through a sign of fours. Gotcha. Okay. And what I found, yeah, I actually, read... go ahead. Go ahead. I I read those all when I was I was pretty young, so I feel like I need to go through and reread it all again. Uh, the guy that reads it, I don't, I can't remember his name right now, but um, he's very good. Um, 
Yeah. Very good narrator. He's he's the kind of narrator that are, that can do different voices for different characters. Um, gotcha. So it enhances those stories. You can tell the difference between Watson as the narrator and Sherlock when they're talking. Um, but what I found very interesting is something that I think has been done wrong up until... No, maybe not even up until. Something that's been done wrong in all of the Sherlock um, movies and TV shows. The whole thing about um, his drug use. Um, like in the book, he, he uses cocaine. He injects himself with cocaine. Uh-huh. Uh, so House, like I said, is a representation of Sherlock Holmes. And <clears throat> his um, he's, he's an addict. We've talked about this in the show before. Um, he's taking Vicodin all the time while he's working. Uh, that's yeah. not some. That's not something Sherlock would have done. Um, now you'll have to remind me if this was Robert Downey Jr. or C- Benedict Cumberbatch, but one of them uses a drug to visualize and solve a crime, where they can see I, the words. I'm pretty sure that's. Um, wow, I'm not sure. I think it was Cumberbatch. Yeah, I think it was Cumberbatch too, because for some odd reason, I vaguely, I, I, I vaguely remember the visualization of that, but I, I don't, I don't, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was Cumberbatch. Yeah, and I think it wasn't, it wasn't like cocaine or something. It was like uh, some high, you know, science drug of some sort that, <laughs> yeah. that he had made or something. Um, and the reason those are wrong is it says right in the beginning of the Sign of Four that he uses the cocaine when he doesn't have a puzzle because his mind can't rest. So if, if he's not working on a puzzle, he has to give himself something to occupy it, but he would never ever touch it while on a case. Yeah. Totally not related to Ian McKellen, but I thought I'd had to share that. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, that's it's interesting. Here. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see what happens uh, with this next uh, bunch of, of, of Sherlock episodes coming out. Well, movies, you could call them. Uh, but yeah, they've, they've got a new batch coming out as well, so that'll be interesting. And the Robert Downey Jr.'s one is making a third movie. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. I think it's coming out this year. Huh. Ah, gotcha. Well, big it's going to be an interesting sure. year for movies. Yeah, big year for a lot of things, actually. Tons of stuff is coming out. Have you, have you watched Elementary? No, I have not. Me neither. It's with Lucy Liu. I think she's yeah. Watson. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm not sure how I, I. I mean, considering how much I like the 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 Benedict version so far, I don't know uh, if I'm ever going to go back and watch that. Well, I I kind of have a problem with the fact that it's called Elementary too. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> Elementary was uh, created for the Basil Rathbone movies. It's never said in any of the Sherlock Holmes books. He never huh, says I... elementary, my dear Watson. When he's talking about deduction, he does talk about simplicity. It's simple. It's very simple. It's simplicity at its finest. Never says the word elementary. Hmm. Yeah, I'm very curious to. I, I really need to dive back and take a look at the. Uh, I, I what's it called the the? It's called Mr. Holmes, the Ian McKellen one. Yes. Yeah, Mr. Holmes. I I really need to watch that. I mean, it just, I, considering how fascinating of a character Sherlock Holmes is to me, I, I'm very curious to see how a real version of that, because, I mean, he's kind of a caricature in almost every performance I've ever seen of him. So it would be interesting to see Sherlock with regrets. I would like to challenge you to watch that movie and then 
write us a little thing on Medium about what you think of it. Yeah, I would love to. I mean, I, I have such a, a hero worship for both of those characters, the fictional character in Sherlock and the real person in, in McKellen, that I have a feeling I'm probably going to gush a little bit. <laughs> it would be a great supplemental article to this episode. Um, you yeah. said that you, you did a lot of research on this, on, on his activism, and I was wondering if you had any insight onto how you think that played into his creativity. Um, it's It's funny because I think he... You know, if if you look through his history as as a person, he his his he comes from three generations worth of either ministers or strict evangelical preachers, um, and so him being a gay atheist is so hard of a twist in the other direction. Um, I remember in, in 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 when we were talking um, um, earlier about a lot of the tech stuff, you were talking about. Um, simplification, and I think that one of the things that he focused on his entire life was, um, you know, when asked about um, his opinions on other things in politics or war or whatever it may be, he always says that he has very strong opinions about all of those things. But in order to make his message more, 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 more meaningful, um, he decided to focus on one, which was his, um, you know, fight for equal uh, for 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 gay rights and and equality for all humans. Um, and I definitely think, I mean, if you look at his his role as Magneto, um, it was interesting that you brought that up about the Brian Singer conversation, is that it's it's all about equality in some way. Um, and in almost every everything he's done, even if you look at at the 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 role that he played for Richard the Third, I mean, there's there's as heinous as that character is, it's also very diverse in its own way um, because it's during a time of of of, of fascism. It's a it's a fake reality basically. It's a fake future um, in England. Um, and so I think I think there's always been a quiet defiance in every single character that he's ever played, um, either on screen or um, um, on the stage. You know, even if you look at Gandalf, for example, he's kind of the renegade wizard um, among the wizards. Um, and you know, he smokes weed, hangs out with hobbits. It's a little strange. Um, and so there's there's always a counterculture. Um, vibe to almost every character that he's he's ever really played. Um, you know, even if you look at his his Nazi character in Apt Pupil, um, he's he's a wolf living among sheep, um, and very different from the environment that he's living in or growing up in. You know, or not growing up in. I'm sorry, but um, the the environment that he's in. So, um, you know, I definitely think that whether it's subtle or 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 very very um, obvious, he's always played characters that have had some kind of undertone um, that kind of bucked authority. Um, so I definitely think his activism um, has played a huge part in not only the role he's the roles he's chosen, but how he's 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 decided to to take on and 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 flush out those roles. It's also very apparent in Gods and Monsters too. His oh role, yeah, true, true. His role is James Whale, which maybe in some way the closest to his own reality in the sense that um as far as i know james whale is the only gay man that he's played in a film huh i gotta think about that there, i think you might be right yeah there may be lesser known movies of of the movies that i know of and i've seen i'll say that i can't may maybe make that sweeping of a statement but as far as i know yeah and i and i think that he's 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 very much, um, in a lot of ways, kept his personal life um, out of his 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 professional life, um, at least in an obvious way. Because I know, at least from from an activism standpoint, he's he's pretty hardcore. Um, I mean, he's he's not militant by any stretch, but he's always very very strongly opinionated. But because he has this this 
polished charm and this this almost painful eloquence um almost everything he say he says has a grace to it that makes it really tough um for you to see it as scathing so i mean you know when i when i was researching the activism side of his life there were there's so many quotes that were just absolutely beautiful um regardless of how 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 regardless of how how biting they might be um and so yeah that's 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 an interesting and fascinating part about or thing about him as a person too is that you know it's not a it's not just that he has strong opinions about these things but he very much wants people to hear him you know he doesn't want to just be um a loud activist um that stands for something he wants people to understand why he stands for it and i think the way he delivers his message and the grace with which he does it is a very important part of making that uh, much more universally, much more universally heard, um, and and the more the more I saw of his activism when it came to both interviews as well as um, you know um, I'm sorry uh, written as well as as video interviews of him, um, you can definitely see that in the way that he is. There's a calm and a patience to the way he he is that makes his activism that much more palpable. And I think that it's it's easy to understand why he's an activist, considering that he grew up in a, a time in England where being gay was literally against the law. Yeah. He did not come out until he was 49 years old. Yeah, that's amazing. And and the story goes that he, he came out to his stepmother. Um, he was part of the Religious Society of Friends um, in England. Um, and her, I, I, she said something to the effect of um she was glad for his sake because he no longer had to lie to himself um and then from that point forward she encouraged him to to be open and honest not just about his own sexuality but what he felt about that for for equality for for all 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 people who were disenfranchised not just gay people but just just equal rights for all humans i I have to wonder how that how that had affected him in totality in the sense that he's an actor but at the same time, until the, the age of 49, he was playing a role as well in real life. Sure. Yeah, that might explain why why he takes such care with his, his roles, because he, he probably had to create um, a persona that was so rehearsed, um, that had its own backstory and its own history and its own mannerisms, that, that creating characters became almost second nature for him. One of the things that I love that I heard him say was that um, he took on projects that other people wouldn't have taken on um, because they were either risky roles or because there wasn't enough money. Um, he just took them on because he felt they were right. And I find that very respectable. Yeah, and I also I, I also think that there's you know, he's he's not had a he's not had an easy life, um, you know, considering his his family his family history and, 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 you know, a lot of people don't realize that, that he had cancer recently. Um, you know, in 2006, he had prostate cancer and he, he dealt with it with such a grace and a charm, (laughs) you know, he's like, don't worry about me. I'll be fine. You know, um, I'm just going to go take care of this. And of course he disappears from the acting world for a little bit and then comes back and he's, he's fine. He just handles it. You know what I mean? He's, he's never been, he, he, at least in the things that I've seen, he's never been one to talk much about the hardships that he's gone through or the difficulties he's had with things like growing up um, in a predominantly, um, you know, uh, strict and and, and um, hateful world. Um, you know, he lived through World War II. A lot of people don't realize that, but I mean, he's he he. You know, he, I, I remember one particular quote that really stuck out to me was uh, at some point he was he was asked about why he didn't have much of a reaction um, to September 11th and. Um, his response to the reporter was, 
um, well, darling, you forget, um, I slept under a steel plate until I was four years old. And that, that basically means, yeah, he, he was living under the, the, you know, when in his early childhood, he was living under the, the, the threat of constant death. <laughs> yeah, the blitz. He lived yeah. through the blitz. Yeah, he lived through the blitz, and he, he apparently was old enough to remember how horrible it was. It's, I think um, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, the idea of, you know, like separating the creativity from, from the life, and and you made a very good point that needs to be reiterated now that we've gone through a good portion of it. Um, with somebody like Ian McKellen, it really is very difficult to differentiate the two. And maybe maybe that's kind of a lesson that uh, maybe we all see see these things as different, but they're not. Maybe life yeah. is part of that, you know. Yeah, and if you look at the the greats, I mean, you look at guys like Anthony Hopkins. I mean, you, we're we're talking about this class, right? The Bob Hoskins of the world and the Patrick Stewarts, and you can tell that there's there's a there's a there's a definite respect that they have um, for their craft um, that is very different from something you would see from an American actor. You know, like not to go in the complete um, opposite direction, or to even say that they're bad actors. But if you look at it, look like at a, look at a guy like Channing Tatum or Ryan Gosling, you know, the young and up and comers in Hollywood, there's almost a sense of of shame and separation that they have about their craft. You know, if you look at a guy like Ryan Gosling, for example, you know, he he plays music on the side. You know, he he does a bunch of other stuff um, that isn't related to acting at all. Um, but if you look at guys like Patrick Stewart and, and, and Ian McKellen, their entire life is their craft. Everything that they do, um, everything that they, they work on, all their side projects, all their producing, all their writing, all of their, their patronage, it's all, it's all revolving around their craft. And there's such a strong sense of pride and, and, and a sense of completeness to, to their journey through the, the, the creative process with this craft that I think that, that, that it's kind of a lost thing in, in, in modern Hollywood and modern actors is that there's 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 not as much care and as much reverence for the craft itself as you you see from these guys as uh, obviously from a guy like Ian McKellen who just cares so much about the process and and what that process ultimately produces. I think that's a lot to do with their generation, but also a lot to do with the difference between America and England. Um, celebrity is not as important to the British people as it is to us you know we seem as a country to be obsessed with celebrity we just elected a celebrity as president <laughs> so i mean regardless of what people think of of him as a person um he was a, a reality tv celebrity and before that he was famous for being supposedly rich um so that and, and we've we've elected a movie star as a governor of california before uh, mm -hmm. twice actually because ronald reagan was governor of california and yep. ronald reagan was president as well um so there's a huge i think that there's a huge gap in cultural difference there too um sure and and the connection that england has with shakespeare it's still very much an important part of their culture it seems you know obviously we're not english we can't say for sure but it sure seems that way from here 
Yeah, and I, I, you know, if if the Macbeth video that I I implore everyone who who listens to this podcast to go uh, go listen to it, it's going to be in the show notes. Um, listen to the reverence in in McKellen's voice as he's talking about that speech. I mean, it's not a very long speech. It's it's you know maybe 150 words, but they're they're spectacular in their form and the the care that he goes through each word with, um, and even the description that you had about him telling. Um, Patrick Stewart, um, you know what the most important word in that entire speech is. You can tell that that's not a joke. That's not a joke throwaway line that he's he's telling to Patrick Stewart. If you go through that video where he's talking about that speech, um, he he describes that particular part of the speech for a good minute. <laughs> and what's interesting is in his description of that as a young man, he doesn't mention that advice that he gave to Patrick Stewart. Yeah, so you sure. you almost have to wonder if you know all of these decades of that ruminating in his head, that wisdom came out of, of rumination, not from his actual prep for the performance he did back in the day. Yeah. Uh, but you could see, you could see that you could see the, 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 the genesis of the thought though, because, um, you know, in, in, in talking about the, the, the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, he, he mentions how the, the word tomorrow in its repetition, um, makes it almost meaningless. And so, of course, the word and and the emphasis on the word and would actually have a lot more weight in that particular portion of the speech. It makes sense. It just seems like it's it was what we heard was the 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 deduction and what he said to Patrick Stewart was the conclusion. And what's brilliant about the way that he talks about that interpretation um, well, there's a lot of things about it that are quite brilliant, but um, <laughs> yeah. It says a lot about acting as a whole in the sense that um, that is the way that he has reasoned out. And he tells you everything that he's reasoned out. Um, it tells you how his, his Macbeth is. But then you can bring somebody else in and they can do Macbeth and reason all of those meanings differently and have a sure. completely different performance. It doesn't mean he's reasoned correctly. And that's why acting is such an amazing thing because you can have characters that are played over and over again sherlock holmes has been played by over 130 people wow didn't know that 130 from christopher lee who was saruman in lord of the rings <laughs> uh to robert downey jr and benedict cumberbatch and as we said ian mckellen it's 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 incredible i think even peter o'toole played him at once um Basil Rathbone was one of the most famous. He was, I think, the first film representation other than uh, Buster Keaton. Sherlock, uh -huh. Sherlock Jr., I think, was the name of that movie. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting because if you go through, if you actually sat and watched all the Sherlocks, sure, some of them are going to be awful. And I guarantee you all of the ones that are awful are because they're playing too much off of somebody else's performance that came before. Sure. And I know that that's that the Basil Rathbone was a hard one for a lot of people to follow because he was like, he had epitomized it. Um, and that's the same thing with Macbeth. So um, McKellen is bringing these interpretations to these lines and it goes back to exactly what you said, the care that's put into this craft uh, to look at this, to analyze these lines what does this mean? Why would he be saying this? But he also, like he says in there, he says the job of the actor is not only to represent what the character is feeling, but also 
to represent what the author is expressing. You have sure. to keep both of those minds alive. And that's a very different interpretation of acting. The method is completely opposite of that. Sure. And to hear his description of, uh, you know, that, that, that speech and what it was supposed to mean and, 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 and saying that, you know, to him, um, Shakespeare was talking about time, you know, the, the meaningless of the meaninglessness of time, um, under the circumstance. I mean, just the, the level of diving you have to go, the amount of understanding that you have to have and the homework that you have to do to understand a piece of literature that clearly or to interpret it with that level of confidence is, is, it's just telling of, you're right, I think it's a generational thing as well. I mean, if you look at guys um, within that class, um, the, it, it's just a, a level of, of, of dedication to the craft that is, is unique. That I, I, you know, and maybe there are actors today um, that do have that level of dedication towards their craft, um, but maybe the environment's just different. You know, we don't respect um, actors in the same way that we used to, um, and so because of that, um, we, don't, we don't appreciate the, the work it takes to... to, to create and then and then give those characters life on screen um you know but you can definitely i wish there was more stuff like that you know i wish there were more things um, like if we were to talk to to the the late great heath ledger about what it took for him to construct the joker the way that he did um you know i wonder if if we would have that same feeling as we would have um with ian mcclellan talking about um there i go with the extra elegant um with ian mcclellan talking about um you know the interpretation of that speech Actually, interesting that you would bring up Heath Ledger, because that would be one of the examples where I would say yes. Um, people don't know this. There's, there's actually on on Netflix. It's funny that I talked about like wanting to get rid of these things, but I keep referencing things that are on them. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, it's presented like a TV show, but it's not really a TV show. It's presented like a TV show within Netflix. It's called Too Young to Die, and it's all shorter documentaries about um people um art artists who died young uh sure. but they're all all the documentaries are made by different people that's why i say it's not really a tv show the first one is on heath ledger and what you find out is that um there was journals and journals of him reasoning out the joker and and creating that role uh well he, and uh, on that list, I would also have put um, Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, sure. I believe Philip that he's... Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> yep, that was, the, that was the third one I was going to say, too. <laughs> We're on the same wave, yeah. wavelength. Um, <laughs> and maybe, maybe Johnny Depp at times. Sure, sure. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a very different thing. It's a craft to them. Um, and I always have I have problems with those words art and craft and uh, i'm not sure yet that i understand what the difference between the two is they seem to be interchangeable when you when you want to but in this case i mean craft as a compliment it's something that they have honed um mckellen is a master master actor yeah i feel like i feel like part of the reason why because i have the same problems with those words too um and quite a few others um when it comes to to creative stuff, because I feel like there's a certain sense of pretension that just kind of oozes from them when said in the wrong when said the wrong way or said in the wrong context. And I feel like if you look at a guy like like McKellen um, and you asked him, you know, you, about his craft, um, 
there wouldn't be a sense of, 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 of pride about it um, in the same way that we would expect for a man of his stature or his level of success. I, 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 I get the sense that he would just say that the, the craft is ever changing in him, you know, that it's, it's ever growing in him. And as he changes as a person, the craft does too, because the craft is a part of him. And I think that in researching this article, I mean, I'm sorry, this, this podcast, the thing that really sticks out to me and the lesson that I really take away from it is, um, in order to, to really create, in order to create what you are fully capable of creating as an artist, um, it can't just be something you do. It has to be who you are. And and that and that to me is is so clear in 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 his in his just amazing repertoire of stuff. Um, you know the fifty years worth of 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 stuff that he's done that has has single handedly changed a, a, a good portion of of the, the the stage work in England and and quite a bit um, here in the U.S. as well. It's amazing. Yeah, I think that that's one of the the huge differences perhaps um, between the two types of acting we're talking about. A lot of these um, actors that we're not giving specific names to, uh, that that were kind of um, disparaging, they're, they're essentially they're celebrities who act. Yeah, that's that's the way the world views them. That's the way they view themselves. Um, Ian McKellen is an actor who has achieved yeah. some who has achieved some fame, but his job is to act, and there's there's like a blue collar work ethic to it. Sure. In in the sense that, you know, it's like, okay, this is this is my job. This is what I go do and oh, I need to prepare for this and and it's 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 a different way of thinking, I believe. It's it's subtle perhaps for some of you, but those of you who understand what we mean, I think you I think you can feel that. Yeah, and there's there's definitely a workmanship that's obvious when you look at certain actors. I mean, the one that immediately pops to mind is um um uh, Gary Oldman, um, you know, even I, I remember the first thing I ever saw of Gary Oldman was The Professional. And and from that day forward, I was like, whatever this guy does, I'm going to watch regardless of what it is. Because you could tell that there was such care put into constructing his character. Um, and yeah, so you, I think I think if pressed, most people could tell um, who really cares and who doesn't. And there's some actors have the ability to move you. And that's from that that work done. Um, I was just rewatching Contact last night, the Jodie mm-hmm. Foster sci-fi movie. Um, yeah, it's not a great movie, but I've always enjoyed it. But there's a scene at the end where she's in front of, I assume it's like Congress. They don't really say, trying to explain what has occurred, and the camera goes in close on her face. And I mean, her, her acting has been passable the whole movie, but there's that one scene. There's so much humanity in her face and the way her eyes look and everything that all of a sudden it goes from being acting into what we're talking about. Sure. You know, the rest of the movie she'd been acting, but in that moment she became that character. Yeah, I know what scene you're talking about too. There's, there's, there's such a, there's such anguish in her face, and it's, it's, and it's very subtle too. You know, it's like she's not overacting. It's just, and I think that only comes from the kind of care that we're talking about, um, because it's not something that you can plan for. It's something sure. you, you have to embody that character in a way that, so that their emotion is coming out of you even beyond your control. Um, and. 
people, some actors are able to achieve that um, if they're lucky in one scene in a movie or if they're somebody like Ian McKellen for a whole role. Man, I really have to watch this Sherlock. I'm I'm so intrigued. <laughs> I'm annoyed that I haven't seen it. Yeah, I'm uh, trying to think of more modern examples, more actors that 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 I can think of that have that have pulled off that moment. You know that that singular that singular scene of of, of just poignant, amazing work that 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 transcends the the, the project itself. Because you're right. I mean, Contact wasn't a great movie. It wasn't a bad movie by any stretch, but it wasn't a great one either. Um, but that that two and a half or three minutes or whatever it is at the very end of the movie when Jodie Foster's on that witness stand um, is, is almost career defining in, 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 in its reality. I can give you one more. Um, it's a very small, it's in a, it's in a movie that I think is actually awful. Um, it's, what's, what was it called? Darn it. <laughs> it's the Johnny Depp movie where he's him and John Turturro. John Turturro is the writer who really wrote the thing secret window or something like that. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, that was a horrible movie. Was that what it's called? Secret window. I don't remember. Secret I remember Mirror? watching it though. Yeah. Oh, it's, anyways, the movie is not very good, but there's one part where Johnny Depp is talking on the phone. And number one, it's one of the few times in a movie where I saw somebody talking on a phone and I'm like, that's the way somebody would actually talk on the phone. You know, there's appropriate pauses for the other person on the other end of the line to respond. Um, (laughs) But then there's this part where he's, I think he's like eating Cheetos or something like that. And he starts kind of like grabbing at the air because there's like this gnat that's going around him. There's no gnat there. But that little thing that he did right there, it, it, it brought that moment alive and it's, probably the only reason to watch the movie which you probably can't do anyways because i can't remember the title <laughs> yeah so you're never gonna find it well just remember that you, that john Turturro and johnny depp are in it and you'll you'll probably somehow pull it off which should have made it great right um <laughs> so i think. i think maybe um i challenged you to write what you think of mr holmes um i think what will also be good is for both of us maybe to do for the supplemental material maybe do a list of like five roles um, that hit that moment that we're talking about, or even five scenes. Sure, five five yeah, scenes, I'm, five roles. I'm trying, even I'm, I'm trying to think of um, you know, like the the for example, I, I the one that the one that comes out it comes to me. It's in a brilliant movie, of course. I mean, Seven is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, but Brad Pitt's uh, reaction to the what's in the box scene at the very end um, is so gut wrenching and hard to watch almost because of how how real it feels um but yeah yeah that's that's a good one to find those five scenes for for each of us or five five performances that that define that all right so guys look out for that um what are we going to do our next episode on uh i don't know i don't know um we've done a um, musician before this one this is an actor before that we had a director Right? Yeah, we've had yeah. an author in there. Yeah, in, in Asimov, and uh, two authors. Yeah, um, because we you have Tommy. I, I, I've, I've been, I've been kind of itching um, to do another musician, um, and in particular, I've been really itching to do Bob Dylan for some reason. I don't know why. Well, it would be kind of appropriate considering he just won the Nobel Prize. Exactly. <laughs> so I felt like that would be perfect. Well, you heard it here. Next episode. 
Robert Zimmerman. <laughs> Solid. 